Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lingwin, hoping you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, especially the joy you feel when you share that love with others. And we hope that a lot of people are doing that throughout the world at this time. Our program, of course, is not from a political perspective nor from a scientific medical perspective, but from spiritual and religious perspective asking what is the place of God in our life in the midst of this crisis? What is the place of God more specifically in your life? As we do each week, I begin with a story of faith and imagination. Jesus seemed to be lost in thought when Peter said, Master, may I enter into your thoughts Jesus smiled and answered, Peter, you're always in my thoughts, as the others are, because not only are you my friends, you are also my teachers. Peter chuckled over that remark and exclaimed, teachers, master? Yes, Jesus said, I watch you when you speak, when you work, and all that you do. Peter thought for a moment and then said, but master, I don't do or say anything special, certainly nothing different than any other man. But you're forgetting something I taught you, Peter, Jesus said. All men are special in my Father's eyes. And then Jesus was silent and lost in thought again for a moment before he said, When I was a child, my mother always hummed while she prepared our meals. There was always so much love in her heart, and it seemed in her hands, in her eyes, and in her voice. I remember asking her mother, why are you so happy? She said, I'm thankful when I go to the well and there is water. I am pleased when there is flour to make bread. When I see you healthy and happy, I am happy. When there is peace in the family, there is joy in my heart. Also, when I see the birth of a child or an old man or woman raising their hands to the heavens, indicating they're ready to be called home again. Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, Peter, all we do is a reflection of how much we love the Father. Everything we say shows him how much caring and concern is in our hearts. And then he bent down, picked up a twig, carefully studied it, and said, 
Let not our hearts be dry and brittle like this twig. Let them be full of life like this branch. And he reached up and touched one covered with leaves. And then we shall be one with the Father, and we shall know peace, happiness, and joy. A story of faith and imagination. Our guest this evening writes in the preface to his latest book, titled Our Good Crisis, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes. You ever find yourself in a state of existential vertigo? A flurry of issues swarm about us at any moment. How should I vote on gay marriage? Should I use traditional gender categories? What is my role in responding to the Me Too movement? Should I advocate for security measures at the border? Is my smartphone really changing me? Should we pull down Confederate statues? What is a cultural Marxist? Why is it okay for Adam Levine to rip off his shirt at the Super Bowl and not Janet Jackson, of course, we'll add other questions to that in our discussion this evening. But he continues, Many of these issues and more are not subjects for mere pundit debate. They touch down in the lives of everyday people. Like the conflicted parents who ask, Should we attend our daughter's gay wedding? Or the thoughtful friend who inquires, Should I refer to my friend as they? Or the church member who asks, how should I respond to that church member's post? Questions like these, and our society's polarized response to them, sent me back to school. The apologetics training I received in seminary is inadequate, given the real questions people want answers for today. This is no fault of my seminary. Rather, it is a stark reflection of a change in the times. And yet... There are many things that remain the same. The word of the Lord is the same forever. Blessed are the meek, the mourners, the righteous, the merciful, the pure, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. These clarifying statements from Jesus possess such moral force they can flatten us like a Tyson Fury KO. But when absorbed, they produce moral ballast that transforms our character, encourages our communities, renews our churches, and blesses our society. While we are in a cultural crisis, we're also in a moment ripe with tremendous opportunity. We can turn the tide in small and big ways by demonstrating the goodness of Jesus' kingdom. These are the words of Jonathan Dodson. He's been on our program a couple times before, the last time in November of 2018. And if I bring someone back, you know, I love the previous interview in this two in this case, but he's the founding pastor of City Life Church in Austin, Texas, the founder of Gospel Centered Discipleship. He's the author of several books. And we discuss one of those books here in the spirit in 2018. He writes this book, he explains as a redeemed sinner who is learning to so cherish the Lord of the Beatitudes that moral change happens. And at the end of each chapter, you will find questions to help you cultivate a beatitude in your life. Pastor Jonathan Dodson, welcome to Amplify. Welcome back to Amplify. (laughs) 
Thank you very much. It's a, it's a treat to be with you. I appreciate your invitation and the thoughtfulness in which you engage uh, your, your interviewees and, and the world around us. Well, there's a lot to engage you about. <laughs> One would begin, when you wrote this book, you didn't expect it'd be coming out at this particular time, did you? What would be going oh, no. on in the world? No, not at all. It's uh, unfortunate and yet timely. Yes, it is timely. Uh, That's the next point I want to get to. Uh, if you were writing a book ab about today, it probably would be different. There'd be some different aspects you would want to emphasize than others. But certainly mm -hmm. when we talk about the Beatitudes... They have so much to say to us at this particular time. In fact, the, the title of your of the first chapter in this book is Flourishing in an Age of Crisis. And so we could be talking about an age of crisis today, couldn't we? Certainly. And what would we want to begin to say about it? What are the what are your thoughts? What what is what have you been thinking about yourself as sensitive a person as you are and as much as you love the Lord and you know he loves us <laughs> yes um, one of the beatitudes that I've been drawn to in our present crisis is uh, blessed are those who mourn yes. so they shall be comforted um, <clears throat> when the coronavirus hit uh, we all had to make very sudden changes in our lives um, some of them very disruptive, some of them uh, devastating, depending on where you were living in the world and what was happening. Uh, but I think in general, um, everyone uh, felt uh, discomfort and restlessness. Um, I certainly did. Yes. Living in Texas, our um, infection rate and mortality rate has been significantly lower than places like New York City or Italy or Spain or China, and yet we've uh, experienced that shelter-in-place uh, restriction that has cut us off from the people we love, uh, the community we love to worship, uh, the things that would bring us everyday kind of embodied joys that we uh, perhaps have taken for granted. <clears throat> and uh, I quickly pivoted to take our church online, the Sunday gatherings, the city groups or the communities. Um, to contact all the at-risk groups, uh, pregnant mothers, um, people you know, over 60, uh, either various groups. And uh, I found myself, uh, as we made all of these changes in the evenings, being very, very restless. And um, uh, this, this kind of persisted. I, I couldn't read uh, for, for enjoyment. And uh, I, I came across an article by David Kessler who addresses grief, and he said basically this gnawing restlessness is grief, and it was so helpful for me. So I, I began to hand my individual griefs over to the Lord, knowing that he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as I did, I, I was met by a sweetness and comfort in the Holy Spirit, that addressed uh, that restlessness and has continued to be a source of comfort and grace to me. And then I tried to lead our staff and our church through that process. And it's been important for us to recognize that very often we distract ourselves from grief or we grief or we leap over grief to get things done. And uh, I think it's been helpful for all of us to slow down and to acknowledge the things that we've lost uh, in the presence of the Lord and to find comfort with Him. 
So, you know, that's one beatitude that's been particularly uh, helpful for us and for me personally uh, in this time. And you made reference to uh, the Spirit, and of course, that was your last book we talked about, titled Here in the Spirit, Knowing the Spirit Who Creates, Sustains, and Transforms Everything. The Spirit has to be at work in this, too, I would think. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I can't prove it scientifically, and I said at the beginning, we, we don't approach things from a scientific perspective, political, uh, mm -hmm. one medical, but when people are saying... You know, how could they have been so wrong about the models that they used? They predicted so many more people were going die, they were going to die, and they haven't died, and and this didn't happen, and that didn't happen. And they used the wrong models, and they're criticized. And I keep thinking, is anyone wondering, at least wondering, if God had a part in this? <laughs> Did God intervene? I mean, is would anyone even begin to think about that? I mean, if they can mm -hmm. think about that, why would you think about the work of the Spirit? that was going on here, be grateful and and move on uh, to do what we what we need to do. But mm -hmm. when we talk about the Beatitudes, we're, we are being asked now how to live according to the common good, aren't we? Mm -hmm. We are, and I think in a secular or secularized society, you know, our priests are doctors and scientists. Yes, And so we look to them to help us through uh, suffering. And they obviously don't have the philosophical, the theological, the spiritual answers that we actually need. And so if, if they fail us, uh, if the, you know, the scientists and the, 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 the technologists, if, if our priests fail us, then we, then we criticize them, you know, then we... Yes. And so it's it's not really a surprise to me to see the kind of the backlash if you don't have um, a being who can give you perspective, comfort, and actually show you a greater purpose in the midst of suffering. You know, that's one of the things that um, Viktor Frankl uncovered when he was in, in Auschwitz, that um, many of his patients were uh, committing suicide and struggling in the bits of great horror. And what he found is if he could uncover meaning, you know, his book was uh, The Search for Meaning, or the, mm -hmm. uh, is that the title? Some, something like that. Yes, that's it. That's it. Um, and uh, what he found is when, the, when his patients had some meaning, that they could embrace the suffering as a kind of moral task and not end their lives. And it actually worked. So you had a scientist who wanted to finish a series of books. Uh, there was a mother that was estranged from her son that she wanted to be, obviously, to be reunited with. And as you, as you, as each patient found meaning, they found hope. Uh, they they found a, a way to persevere. And I, I think that the meaning is is helpful. That we do find meaning in suffering with the Lord. Uh, we find um, that He will use suffering to draw us closer to himself, uh, to transform our character. But I think the thing that Frankel didn't quite capture was that each of those patients probably persevered, not only because they found rationally conceived meaning, but because they had someone present with them, namely himself. And in that sense, we have someone uh, in the Holy Spirit who is a comforter who goes wherever we go no matter how dark the hole, the tunnel, 
or who are difficult to suffering. And in a secular society, there is no friend that follows you wherever you go, that's available at all times, and that possesses all comfort. And yet the Holy Spirit himself is called the Comforter. Um, he searches at our hearts. He knows all things. He says, even if we make our uh, bed in shield, down as we brush with death, there I will be with you. I'll take you by the hand and I'll lead you. And so it, it, it does make sense that in a rational, secularized society that the priests of science and technology fail us that we would criticize. But it also casts a light upon the better priest, the better comforter, and the, and the thing that we actually really long for as we uh, cynically look at our politicians and our kind of secular priestcraft. We are longing for a portable, eternal, personal Savior who is there with us in the pain, comforting us and using the pain to do greater things than we could conceive of. Some people you point out uh, ignore uh, sorrow. Uh, we have our own way with dealing with the kinds of things that a lot of people are dealing with uh, today. Some minimize it, some maximize it. Um, mm -hmm. And the message that, um, that we believe in is the one that's going to affect us undoubtedly uh, the, the deepest. And um, uh, tell us a little bit about um, the fact that uh, we're losing our, our ability to focus, that uh, our brains are being rewired. You talk about when, we're, when you write about this particular uh, part of the book. Yeah, the, the observation I was making that it's difficult to mourn in an age of distraction. And so many of us have found, you know, you see it in the headlines, um, this is what this artist is doing, this is what this actor is doing, this is to occupy themselves in the midst of a lockdown and suffering. And while those things are not inherently bad, um, often they are distractions from our grief and our pain and uh, distract us from what God actually wants to accomplish in us. And so the observation I was making is that there has been, a, you know, with the advent of the Internet, social media, um, that we, our reading habits have changed radically. And Nick Carr in his book, uh, The Shallows, talks about this. Uh, he, he documents the, the influence of uh, um, the Internet on the, our actual... <laughs> Our actual minds, our brains, the neurons are reshaped by the way that we are processing information. And so we uh, actually have, you may have even noticed that your, your short-term memory uh, is okay, but your long-term memory is harder, uh, not, not, as, not as good. Um, the uh, attention span is vastly restricted. You know, as you, you might be listening to some music, uh, reading a book. You get an email, you uh, answer the email, you come back to the book, you can't find where you were, you lost your place. You know, you, we have so many things that, are, that we are engaging in any given moment in this wired age that we have reduced our memory capacity, we have reduced our attention span, and that uh, makes it hard to contemplate. It makes it more difficult to... Uh, meditate, as, uh, as the Psalms say, on the splendor of your glorious majesty and on the wonder of your wondrous works, I will meditate. That sounds inviting, then you get an email or a tweet and you, <laughs> you're back yes. to work. You know, 
uh, slowing down to contemplate the splendor of God's glorious majesty or to consider what is it he wants to change in me? What is it that I, um, uh, in my character, that needs to be transformed during this time? Those kinds of thoughts and patterns of contemplation are, are, are very difficult in this technological age. And so I was trying to demonstrate the need to obviously uh, create space to just yes. uh, to mourn, to include God in our thoughts, not just distract ourselves from our thoughts. And sometimes it's easier to uh, distract because we, we tend to do that in life. You point out that uh, moral decisions create fork in the road moments in our lives every single day and that uh, there's behind many crises there is a moral crisis. We'll take this break and we'll be back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify where our guest this evening is Pastor Jonathan Dodson. We're talking about his latest book, Overcoming Moral Chaos with the Beatitudes, uh, making the application uh, where it's appropriate. Uh, to the present crisis we find ourselves in. A little frightening, the news uh, saying that some people are concerned that the number of deaths over the next few months could could double, could really double in the, in the United States if we don't pay attention to uh, what it is that we are doing. Um, and Jonathan, why don't you do this for us, a little more background. I, I took us right in, fast speed <laughs> into the middle. Tell us a little bit, just, just list for us the Beatitudes, what they basically are, and then um, the secular Beatitudes and what the Beatitudes, how the Beatitudes would read if we rewrote them to reflect the way we really live. And so the contrast between the real and uh, the practiced. Yes. Um, so I'm working from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, as I work through the Beatitudes. Uh, there is the Sermon on the Plain and the Gospel of Luke, which is uh, a little shorter. Jesus probably gave this sermon, uh, well, obviously at least twice, probably more than, more than that. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is to understand the Beatitudes and how we are to live these really intimidating and yet inspiring, uh, punchy, inspired statements by the Lord in the context in which we find ourselves really in, in kind of a, a, a culture of, of secular, secular beatitude. So, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, <clears throat> you know, being poor in spirit obviously has to do with humility. And so I try to explore that beatitude in the age of a big me. Um, so in our present context, we are told uh, what matters most is my truth, um, to express ourselves however we feel, um, whether that's uh, a gender, uh, a, a job aspiration. You know, there's a, a radical, as uh, one sociologist described it, a kind of transcendental attention to the self. Um, and it, so it's in those kind of headwinds, the big me, um, and I borrowed that from David Brooks, that big me. Um, <clears throat> it's very hard to cultivate humility in the context of a big me. 
And the big me can be a poor me, you know, I'll never measure up, or it can be a big me, um, a great me, look at me, everyone applaud. But we, we all struggle with pride, um, in, in either weak or strong. But in a culture where everything is radically reoriented around the individual, it's especially hard. Um, so that's one example of being, you know, how can you be poor in spirit in the age of the big me? And so uh, what I try to do is, is basically take each beatitude and set it in our kind of present uh, cultural context and, uh, and work our way through. So uh, what does it look like to mourn in an age of distraction? How can we be meek in an age of hubris? Uh, what does it look like to be righteous in an age of values, which are kind of mushy, and righteousness is firm, uh, kind of uh, is transcendent? Um, mercy in an age of tolerance. Uh, <clears throat> a purity in the age of self-expression, and peacemaking in an age of outrage. And then the final one is persecution in an age of comfort. <clears throat> So I try to lay these two uh, next to each other, the kind of secular beatitude and then the, the Lord Jesus beatitude, and ask ourselves, how do we actually live against the grain into the promise of this fruitful, coherent, moral vision that Jesus has given us? And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do there with a little bit of the background of the beatitudes and the approach. Of course, Jesus challenged the prevailing notions of the good in his time. Uh, you point that out in the Sermon on the Mount when he lays out a guide to uh, the virtuous life. And a couple of, a couple other points that you, you make are that uh, perhaps, <clears throat> excuse me, I, my voice hasn't been uh, good for a couple of weeks. Perhaps uh, Christians have settled for appearing good without being good. So, yes, we're going to appear good, but, boy, if we were really honest about it. So, but we get back to a little application. You, you applied it to all of the Beatitudes when you raised these questions, but it would apply certainly to what we're experiencing today. What role do we play in the present crisis? And you indicate that we need training for goodness. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and, and the Beatitudes are, are, on the one hand, meant to give us that training for goodness. You know, <clears throat> as we think about how do I find a moral guide in this uh, world, you know, the, the, the Beatitudes are, you know, what, one of the greatest moral documents of all time, certainly for Western civilization, but respected around the world. Um, Richard Dawkins even said that you know he thought that the, B, the Sermon on the Mount was way ahead of its time. Well, it, it's not only way ahead of its time, it came from outside of time and mm-hmm. touched down to give us a guide for virtue. So, <clears throat> yes, I think the uh, embracing these Beatitudes create an opportunity for us to be trained morally and to cultivate virtue. And one of the differences between appearing good and being good which is um, something that even the uh, Platonic philosophers and Aristotle talked about, that it's, it's not uh, virtuous to accidentally do something good. It's only virtuous if you intend to do it. Um, you know, uh, virtuous, virtue comes out of the soul, not just out of the, 
uh, the will or an action. So there's kind of an integrity that the the Lord is looking for, an integrity of heart and an integrity of action. And we, of course, see this in Jesus, that he is not just teaching one thing and doing another, but he lifts his teachings to a T, in fact, all the way to the the point of death. So these are very um, helpful in cultivating virtue. And I have, uh, I, I find them, you know, incredibly challenging. You know, it's like uh, the, the first one, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, f- for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like, poor in spirit, you know, that, that's kind of got the, a couple things in, mixed into it. I think it has a kind of humility, a foundational humility, and a generosity, a c- concern for those that are downtrodden, um, and then they kind of personal sense of your um, inadequacy, if, if you will. But it doesn't come from comparing yourself to someone who's better than you or comparing yourself to yourself and your past performance. It comes from comparing ourselves to God. That when we compare ourselves to his greatness, we are humbled. So it's kind of a vertical uh, kind of humility. And um, I, I think of experiences like going to the Grand Canyon I took my family there. We had a wonderful time. And when you walk up to the edge of that canyon, you look down that mile stretch, I mean, it is stunning. Your breath is some taken away. And you feel so small. And yet, at the same time, you're lifted up. And it's, it's that, that kind of captures a bit of what poor in spirit is. It's, you're humbled by the greatness and the transcendence and the omnipotence of God and the glory of God. And yet, as you look at the glory of God shining in the face of your wounded Messiah, you are lifted up. You are embraced by his love, his tenderness, his mercy. And so uh, this really is the gateway beatitude into a life of virtue. That if we, if we try to impose humility, it won't work. But if we look at something truly great, uh, that we will be humbled and yet in the grace of God lifted up. And, and that is the gateway into character, to, to not be comparing all the time to others, but to be coming back to the Lord and to be brushing up against his greatness and settling into his grace. That in itself is a transformative experience. And, of course, Jesus taught us about the uh, preferential option for the poor. And we, um, and even a situation like now, what does it ask of me? There are many quote-unquote, people who are poor in different ways. It may be actually financially, but there's so many other ways in which one can be poor. We don't have to take a vow of poverty, you point out, and um, that uh, you you speak about what it means to be um, spiritually broken and used by God. We need to avoid spiritual, spiritual pride and practicing poverty of spirit in today's culture can be so very difficult uh, because we're consumed with causes and and activism. We're preoccupied, as you've just been talking about, uh, with with the self. And so mm-hmm. we we conceive ourselves. You write uh, as many things, not one. And there's there's no essential me. This this one struck me. I can become whatever I construct myself to be. And has no relationship to God, does it? I mean, really? Mm. No. In terms of what God it, may want me to be, 
in the big picture or in the small picture in the circumstances I find myself in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the self-constructed me is an exercise in vanity and hopelessness. And what you find is, is and I, I see this in my own city and church, people who, who choose this as a way of living, they'll choose a, a certain thing to be into. And it will last for a moment, and then it will fade in its significance, and so they move on to another thing. And it, it might be a change in gender. It might be a change in sexuality. It might be a change in jobs. It might be a change in churches. But there's this kind of rotating catalog of me's. And I'm trying to find the thing that satisfies me. And the problem, of course, is that all these things are finite. All these things are not made to satisfy what the soul longs for. But we want to be in charge of the thing. And that's the fundamental problem. That we want to be the God that determines what satisfies us. And until we step down from that lofty place and, and invite poverty of spirit, we cannot enter into the satisfaction of God's holy and gracious presence. And so it's so heartbreaking to see people chase the thing that they really want but from a high place instead of a low place and, and, and injure themselves psychologically, personally injure others. Um, and so poverty of spirit is, is a sweet reward to rescue us from the vanity and the futility of of the big me, and to find our proper place in this cosmos. You know, to find our settled, humble place before the transcendent word of all. It's there that we find our satisfaction and our hope. And, um, man, I want to stay there more often myself and, and not wander off. And, and, I, and I want us to, in this book, Help, help cultivate some of that, you know. Yeah, so. you, you do that well, so very well. Um, I keep coming back to uh, this point. I could repeat it over and over again. Uh, Jesus promised that he would be present with those who mourn. He doesn't promise that our friends will be. So uh, I'm going to be there. Your friends may not be there, but know that I will. I will be there, and he... He will bless. He blesses those who mourn, who we've talked about, and through the mm-hmm. Spirit. What does it mean to say that the heavens work backward? <laughs> That's a C.S. Lewis phrase, a master with the language, English language. Yeah, so that's taken from um, The Great Divorce. Uh, an individual is taken a bus ride um, uh, to see heaven and to see hell. And um, an angel is his guide. And it's in that book that this phrase is uttered by the angel, the the glorious being to uh, the central character. And the central character is saying, you know, don't tell me that heaven is going to make up for all of my earthly sorrow. You know, and that does, when you hear that, uh, sometimes Christians give that counsel like, you know, it's going to be better. Um, they're in a better place, you know, uh, you know, uh, this too shall pass. And it all, it, it kind of belittles the suffering in the moment. And so this character is saying, you know, just don't give me that. Uh, don't tell me that, you know, it's just, it's all going to be better. Um, 
And so the, the, the angel, the glorious being, says to him, uh, well, what you don't realize is that when you arrive there, you'll realize that heaven was working backwards, that every agony was actually a glory. Yes. It's a very powerful language. I think the thing that he's trying to convey to us is that had we the vantage point of heaven, we would understand that even our agonies are designed for our joy. And in our sorrows, it is so hard to conceive of that, much less believe it. And so we need, we need promises from God, like Romans 8:28, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And of course, if you're in earth and you're looking to heaven, you don't quite have that vantage point. And so for now, it's by faith, not by sight. It's trust in the Lord Jesus. But heaven does work backwards. And as it works backwards, it actually has design and purpose. We, we can't see the purpose for the pain always, but over the arc of our lives, that, that promise in Romans 8, 28 tells us, all these things, the disappointment, the heartache, the joys, the grit, it's all working together over time in this redemptive arc to produce in you, in me, a more glorious version of ourselves than we could have ever had without the pain. And that's where Romans goes. It, it works all things together for good for those who love God according to his purpose. And then Paul says, for the conformity to the image of his son, to, mm-hmm. to, to the... Um, the shaping of who we are to align with our, our, our maker, to align with the, the, um, the, the vanguard of the faith, the, the ultimate uh, uh, human, the, 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 the God-man, Christ Jesus. And, in, and if we will embrace that, we, we can see that our sufferings have purpose and design, not only to yield virtue, but to yield intimacy with the Lord who himself embraced these sorrows. Um, and so heaven works backwards to transform our agonies into glory as we take our sufferings and kind of uh, submit them to the Lord Jesus yes. and trust his promises. I, uh, I underline a lot in the book, more red than, than white. And uh, <laughs> this is one part of the book. Um, we don't have to conjure a lovely idea of the self. This is talking it's in this section on about meekness. Instead, a glory outside us comes to live in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus mm. secured this glory for us through his death, pain, death on the cross, and his mighty resurrection, his injury for our reward, his obedience for our disobedience, is righteousness for our unrighteousness, it hardly seems fair. That's, <laughs> that's grace. With his heroic work done, we no longer have to imagine doing the things that others have done. Jesus pinned his medals to our chest. He assigned the glory to us. And so you say within this, within this chapter, if you comment on it just a little bit more, we get a bigger vision of God by looking at him in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is taken from 
Colossians, you know, that the the weight that the weight of glory is placed on us, that Christ in us, the hope of glory. You know, the word glory, kavod, uh, in Hebrew, doxa in Greek, it has a sense of weightiness, of heaviness, mm-hmm. a permanence, of um, transcendence. And this is what we lack and what we long for. And the me is trying to find that, but find it apart from the place that it exists in the Lord. And so um, it, I, I'm, I'm alluding there to a short story by Hemingway in which these soldiers were in a um, military hospital, and one of them is there because he was injured accidentally, and the rest, you know, were injured in combat. And they're having drinks one night, and he finds himself wishing he had done the heroic things that they had done. Mm. He's comparing himself to them and his, his um, you know, vain injury and their valor. And so he, he finds himself longing to have that. And it's when we look at others and we compare ourselves to others that we too kind of wish that we had done the things that, you know, so-and-so had done. And that is a dim reflection of the longing that we have that is meant to be fulfilled in the hope of glory, that the Lord of glory would put on us his glory, that he has done what we could never do in his moral perfection, in his uh, humble sufferings, in his entrusting himself to the Lord on this earth, all of these things he has done for us. And so we need not envy what others have done because the Lord Jesus is our hero. He He has achieved what we could never achieve and he has taken, he has taken the medal from around his own neck and placed it around ours, so that the glory of the Lord is upon us. And when we we let that sink into us, we we are freed from the vain pursuits and comparisons that we so easily fall into. Is to, to let the the medal of Christ's glory rest there, you know, sweetly on our chest, and free us from the from those vain pursuits. We're going to talk about righteousness when we come back. You you write, we live in a moral universe. We can't escape morality. Deep down, we know that good and evil exist. However, we lack moral courage, conviction, and moral fiber. The modern self prefers values over virtue. Why is that? And at what cost? 